Will the U.S. Supreme Court overturn Roe v. Wade? A leaked draft document from the court seems to suggest just that. Angie Thomas of the Louisiana Right to Life and Carrie Severino of the Judicial Crisis Network are here with analysis. New Jersey Congressman and co-chair of the House Pro-Life Caucus, Chris Smith, weighs in on the reaction from Congress. And Archbishop of San Francisco, Salvatore Cordelione, exclusively reacts to Catholic President Joe Biden's remarks on abortion this week. Finally, Papal Posse member Father Gerald Murray is here to cover the big stories of the week and his timely new book, Calming the Storm. The World Over begins right now. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. We have an important show for you tonight. If you'd like to comment, send me a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Lots to cover. Let's get right to it. A firestorm of controversy erupted this week when a draft document by Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito was leaked to the press. Now, that draft document seems to indicate the court is about to overturn the landmark 1973 Roe v. Wade ruling that legalized abortion on demand across the United States. Will Roe be overturned? And what happens from a legal standpoint if abortion policy goes back to the individual states? Here with analysis is attorney and president of the Judicial Crisis Network, Carrie Severino, and attorney and associate director of Louisiana Right to Life. Angie Thomas. Ladies, thank you for being here. I want to start with the unprecedented leak of this Supreme Court draft opinion. Chief Justice John Roberts has launched an investigation into who leaked it. Um, he said this week this is a singular and egregious breach of that trust that is at the uh, an affront to the court and the community of public servants who work here. I've directed the marshal of the court to launch an investigation into the source of the leak. To the extent this betrayal of the confidences of the court was intended to undermine the integrity of the operations, it will not succeed. Carrie, how destructive is this leak uh, of a Supreme Court draft, and what impact does it have on the future of the court? Yeah, it's hard to overstate how shocking this is for people who've worked around the court. While a lot of institutions in D.C. kind of leak as a matter of course, the court up until this week was the one everyone said, this is pretty much leak-proof. You could, there's just a handful of, of instances where things have leaked from it and never a draft opinion in full form like we saw uh, leaked on Monday. Um, I think this is going to have a huge impact on the court. Even major decisions like Bush v. Gore, which apparently really strained some of the relationships, not just among justices, but among clerks who allegedly got into some actual physical fights over it, there weren't leaks in that case. <laughs> this, is a, this is a big betrayal, and I think it will make it hard for justices to be able to trust the clerks that they have to work with so closely to help prepare their opinions. And I think mm. the biggest problem is it adds the this level of public pressure on the court in a way that I think this leak was clearly intended to do. So now you have in the Supreme Court putting up huge barriers outside, trying to protect the justices inside. I think uh, they'll probably be needing increased security at their homes even, as people have been uh, 
publicizing their addresses, asking for people to be yep. protesting at their houses. I mean, it's it's a it's a huge impact to the court and the way it's going to be able to function. Hmm. To both of you, I know media reports uh, have set the vote count as five votes, at least five, for overturning Roe. How fixed is that vote count, Carrie? How reliable is it? Uh, yeah, in, in, in most cases, the justices will vote the same week as the arguments. And in most cases, that vote does stay where it was. But there definitely, with, with some regularity, there's a case where someone will read the majority and say, you know what, actually, I, I, I'm not sure I, I can go with that anymore. I'm going to switch sides or vice versa. They read it and they're compelled by the arguments and they switch sides. And this has happened in other major cases in abortion, including Planned Parenthood versus Casey, where unfortunately the court was prepared in that case to overturn Roe and then uh, the votes switched. So I think it's important for everyone to remember those who are praying for the, the justices, uh, not just for their safety, but also for the outcome of the case, to remember that uh, there's always the possibility that this vote changes. And I, I certainly would hope uh, that in light of public pressure, that that would not be a reason for change. So uh, this this really isn't over until it's over. Mm. Carrie, on Tuesday, you tweeted that the court should immediately release their opinion. I imagine this is why, because you, you, you'd like a clean vote on this quickly without time for public pressure and protests, et cetera. Well, that's that's part of the reason. I, I hope if we have five votes now, let's let's lock it down. But really, as a practical matter, having this opinion out there puts the court under extreme pressure and even even uh, actual physical danger to the court and the justices themselves. I think it's important to end this dis this debate and discussion now. I, normally, we would expect it to come out at the end of June, at the end of the term. But I think under mm -hmm. these highly unusual circumstances, a faster a release would be appropriate. On Tuesday, President Biden had this to say in response to the leak of this draft opinion. Watch. It concerns me a great deal that we're going to, after 50 years, decide a woman does not have a right to choose within the limits of a Supreme Court decision in Casey, number one. But even more, equally as profound, is the rationale used. Right. And right. it would mean that every other decision relating to the notion of privacy is thrown into question. Well, it's a fundamental shift in American jurisprudence. Biden went on to suggest that everything from gay children going to school to the use of contraception is threatened by this decision. Uh, in the draft, and it is in the draft, and that's the stage it's in, uh, Justice Alito writes, nothing in this opinion should be understood to cast doubt on precedents that do not concern abortion. Angie, is there any veracity to the critique that throwing out this supposed right to privacy would imperil other Supreme Court decisions? No, I don't believe so. I mean, Alito went to great lengths in this draft opinion to make sure of that. I mean, the quote about, as even, as even the Casey plurality recognized, abortion is a unique act because it terminates life or potential life. So uh, Alito really, she, he probably said this three or four times in the opinion that um, to, to make sure to differentiate, to distinguish um, this case and this uh, overturning from all of the other privacy Cases. Members of Congress are accusing some court justices, particularly recent additions, who signed on to the draft, namely Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, of not respecting precedent and lying during their confirmation hearings. Senator Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, uh, pro-abortion Republican Senator Susan Collins of Maine, they said the draft was completely inconsistent 
with what Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh said during their hearings. Now, I'm going to play this for you. Here's what they actually said. Then you can react. Roe versus Wade is a, an important precedent of the Supreme Court. It was decided in 1973, so it's been on the books for a long time. Do you view Roe as having super precedent? Well, Senator, a super precedent is a, a in numbers. Well, 44. It, it has been reaffirmed many times. I can yes. say that. As a judge, it is an important precedent of the Supreme Court. By it, I mean Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. If I express a view on a precedent one way or another, whether I say I love it or I hate it, it signals to litigants that I might tilt one way or another in a pending case. Okay. Carrie, your thoughts on the accusations that the justices lied during their confirmation hearing process? I mean, you just heard their words. It's frankly, they're, they're all very just descriptive. It's things that I think I could say with a clear conscience accurately. Roe versus Wade was decided in 1973. It's an important case. It's been reaffirmed many times. Those are factual descriptions. And nowhere did those justices uh, promise that they would uphold the case in the future, nor could they under legal ethics guidelines, because no. as Justice Barrett alluded to, you can't promise how you're going to vote in a, in a future case. Mm -hmm. I want to get into what Alito does say in this draft document and what it might mean for the pro-life movement in this country. He writes, Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. Its reasoning was exceptionally weak. And the decision has had damaging consequences. And far from bringing about a national settlement of the abortion issue, Roe and Casey have inflamed debate and deepened division. It is time to heed the Constitution and return the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives. Angie, if the final opinion does mirror the draft uh, right up here, Roe would go back to the states, and each state would have their own abortion laws. How will the pro-life movement respond? Well, here in Louisiana, we have been planning for this for several years. I mean, we've, we've been um, really looking at how how are our laws going to hold up after Roe v. Wade is overturned. And this session, in fact, we have a couple of really interesting bills out there. Um, we have uh, our, our hero, Senator Katrina Jackson, who's holding a construction of abortion statutes bill that reaffirms our trigger. We just felt it was important to reaffirm that trigger. We, we have a 2006 trigger. Um, it's called the Human Life Protection Act, and it is a full protection of human life. I mean, there are no exceptions, you know, for rape or incest. And mm -hmm. so we felt like it was important to reaffirm that. Um, so she's carrying that. And we, and we felt it was also important to go, you know, go back. There's been so many laws. Um, you know, we have a six-week ban. We have a 15-week ban. We have a 20-week ban. So we, we wanted to just make sure that our laws all stand alone unless explicitly stated otherwise. So uh, we, mm -hmm. we are very hopeful that these bills are going um, to, you know, help put us in a great position the moment that that decision officially comes down. And, you know, our main focus really has been funding for resources. So in hopes of a fully pro-life state, uh, we're, we're looking at how do we truly support women, especially as Catholics? How, what do we do? How, how can we walk with them? And there's this beautiful program called Walking with Women in Need. Um, that's the U.S. Uh, CCB program. So I encourage all of the viewers to please look into that and look into supporting your pregnancy centers so that we can all be ready for a post-Roe reality. Mm -hmm. uh, very quickly, is this the end of the March for Life if Roe is overturned? I mean, this has been the largest consistent uh, march, protest, civil rights march in America's history. Yeah, I, 
I went to the march this January, and I was certainly hoping it was the last time we'd march, at least in January. I think we should turn it into a celebration march uh, in the summertime. Okay. Carrie, um, some will argue that after almost 50 years of Roe, this is deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition. Uh, Justice Alito goes to pains to suggest that is not the case. Um, he also invokes the 14th Amendment. Your thoughts on this? There are a lot of people saying this is precedent. You have to support it. You know, the Supreme Court justice has taken oath to uphold the Constitution, uh, not to uphold something that someone said in 1973 about the Constitution. And uh, if, an, if a uh, court has added something to that text illegitimately, uh, they should not follow it. The Constitution is very clear about the method for amending it. They are, the framers didn't believe that it had to be, uh, you know, the rest of eternity the same way. But it's the American people in our system who have the authority to do that. That's what keeps us a representative nation and democracy. And mm. so if America wants to amend that Constitution, more power to them. But they have to be the ones. The judges can never usurp mm. that power. So it's very important to return that authority that really was the American people's authority at the beginning, that it ceded to, to the government under the Constitution, to make sure that, that the um, rights that they, that they maintained are reserved by the people and by the states. And, you know, this, this means this isn't finished the question of what's going to happen with the pro-life cause in America, but that's going to be then uh, debated in the legislative sphere where it belongs under our Constitution. Mm. And Justice Alito goes to great pains to point out that uh, Plessy versus Ferguson was on the books for 10 years longer than Roe, and they had to they had to cast that away because it was evil. It was a it was a terrible uh, ruling, and uh, it had to be overturned because it was not in keeping with the the vision or the letter of the Constitution. Ladies, we will leave it there. Carrie Severino of the Judicial Crisis Network, Angie Thomas of Louisiana Right to Life. Thank you both. I want to go now to U.S. Congressman from New Jersey and co-chair of the House Pro-Life Caucus, Chris Smith. Congressman, what was your reaction when you found out this Supreme Court draft opinion had been leaked? And what was the reaction of your colleagues on Capitol Hill? Well, both my wife and I, my staff, and my colleagues are all extremely encouraged uh, that Justice Alito has penned a, a magnificent reversal of Roe versus Wade, hopefully. Uh, that's what the final product will be. Of course, we all would like to have personhood recognized by the court, but empowering legislators at the state level and federal uh, to protect unborn children and their mothers from the violence of abortion. Uh, it's been 50 years of judicial tyranny on this, uh, so finally we'll be able to legislate. I want to play for you something Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts said on hearing about this leaked opinion. She was a little um, riled. This is what the Republicans have been working toward this day for decades. They have been out there plotting, carefully cultivating these Supreme Court justices so they could have a majority on the bench who would accomplish something that the majority of Americans do not want. I am here because I am angry, and I am here because the United States Congress can change all of this. Yes, uh, Congressman Smith, can the Congress change all of it? Um, and assuming the document mirrors that draft, what options do Congress really have here? 
Well, Raymond, you know, this is an engraved invitation to legislate, and that goes both ways. I mean, I'm very concerned that last September, uh, the House passed the Abortion on Demand Act until birth. Uh, every Democrat except for Henry Cuellar voted for it. And on the, uh, the Senate, we'll be taking that up maybe as early as Wednesday of next week. Uh, so we're dealing with an opportunity on the pro-abortion side uh, to provide abortion on demand till birth and to eviscerate, as the House bill does, all of the modest restrictions like women's right to know laws, uh, parental notification statutes, all of those that have been put into place as a very modest effort to protect life, all of those would be swept away. So we are still in a very dangerous zone. Uh, my own state under Governor Murphy, Murphy uh, passed a law uh, that allows for abortion right up at the moment of birth. Uh, and he's looking potentially to do even more. Uh, we know Colorado did the same and other states. There are 18 states that automatically will protect their lives uh, of the unborn if this goes through. Uh, and then there's another 20 plus uh, that uh, have pro-abortion statutes. But again, this is a new phase. It's not the end. It's the beginning of a national debate on abortion. And for the first time ever, the child will be paramount. Of course, we love the women. We care for the women. But we will finally begin to look at what is being done by the deed of abortion, dismembering, chemically poisoning uh, an unborn child. Uh, often with great pain, uh, suffered by the little, little child. Congressman, uh, Elizabeth Warren and others on Congress are calling to codify Roe v. Wade. Uh, Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont tweeted, Congress must pass legislation that codifies Roe v. Wade as the law of the land in the country now. And if there aren't 60 votes in the Senate to do it, and there are not, we must end the filibuster to pass it with 50 votes. Now. Democratic senators Joe Manchin of West Virginia, Kristen Sinema of Arizona have already said they will uphold the filibuster in the wake of this leak opinion. What can Congress really do once the Supreme Court decision is final? And the reason I ask it again is, wouldn't the high court just strike down any attempt to reestablish a federal right, a federal cramdown of abortion from Congress or otherwise? Interesting question. Not sure what the court would do. Not even sure if Alito's leaked draft uh, will be the final product, uh, final opinion uh, issued by the Supreme Court. But again, the other side, and watching, you know, I think it's tragic, watching the senator meltdown as she did just a moment ago on your clip, um, you know, there has been a, an extremism on the part of the pro-abortion movement where all of these children are persona non grata. They are expendable, they're throwaways, there's so much junk. Uh, if they're wanted, okay, but if they're unwanted, or inconvenient, uh, they could be killed through a terrible process uh, of dismemberment. Uh, a Catholic church in Boulder, Colorado, was vandalized, Congressman, by pro-choice advocates following this leak. Um, churches have often been targets of pro-choice extremists in the past. Pro-abortion activists are planning protests now in Catholic churches on Mother's Day. And they're planning visits to Supreme Court justices' homes next week. What do you make of this kind of activism? And uh, do you expect we'll see more of it before the final opinion emerges? Well, I don't believe that this kind of so-called activism, which I think will increasingly trend towards violence. I mean, let's look at what they, what they support. They support completely uh, decimating an unborn child's life, other acts of violence 
uh, are right in line with what they are capable of doing. I have long predicted that when we got to the point where Roe Ro versus Wade was about to be or was reversed, that we would see a spate of that kind of, of uh, activity. Uh, the church has been strong. Uh, thank God the church has been strong in defending life uh, and pro-life lawmakers all over the country, in Congress and in legislatures. Uh, this is the time to, to demonstrate our courage, our commitment, and frankly, our willingness to protect the weakest and most vulnerable among us. And that includes the woman who is the co-victim uh, in these abortions. You know, my wife and mm. I know so many women who are post-abortive. Uh, they need our help as well. Uh, unfortunately, mm. the abortion movement uh, does not is not there uh, when the consequences set in after the abortion. We are. Congressman Smith, before I let you go, um, I, I've spoken to a number of Democratic strategists, and certainly I've seen statements and uh, from senators, congressmen uh, who are Democrats. It seems as if this is a rallying cry, or they see it as a rallying cry, going into these midterm elections, that we will defend your right to an abortion. Do you think that plays with the citizen on the street, especially given the tensions and pressures they're under and, and that this economy is under? Great question. You know, Raymond, the polls have consistently showed that people want significant restrictions. The Marist poll showed that 71 percent of the people in America want restrictions on abortion. Uh, the percentage of Americans who want unfettered right to kill an unborn baby uh, is infinitesimal compared to the majority opinion. Um, I do believe that our side, the church, people who are pro-life and those who will now throw their hat in the ring and become strong as well and speak out, we must redouble our efforts. This is the, this is the national debate on abortion, which was precluded in a large, to a large extent by the Supreme Court and by the lower courts for 50 years. There is, will be no constitutional right to abortion. So it is a, an open invitation to protect those children. But we need to rally. We need to make sure that the candidates are vetted uh, when they're running, either party, as to how they stand on this all-important issue of life. Congressman Chris Smith, thank you for being here. We'll check in with you in the days ahead. In the midst of the controversy over the leaked Supreme Court draft opinion, Catholic President Joe Biden weighed in on the matter, making some very specific comments about abortion, even citing God to justify the practice. Here now, with his thoughts on the president's comments, is the Archbishop of San Francisco, Salvatore Cordelioni. Archbishop, thank you for being here. I, I want to play for you what President Biden had to say on Tuesday in response to the Supreme Court draft. Listen. Roe says what all basic mainstream religions have historically concluded, that the, right, that the existence of a human life and being is the question. Is it at the moment of conception? Is it six months? Is it six weeks? Is it, is it quickening, like Aquinas argued? I mean, so the idea that we're going to make a judgment that is going to say that no one can make the judgment to choose to abort a child based on a decision by the Supreme Court, I think goes way overboard. 
Uh, Joe Biden is a professed Catholic archbishop. He's arguing that someone should be able to, quote, abort a child, he says those words, and that mainstream religions are confused over when life begins. Is that the case? Where to begin? Abort a child already tells you the illogic of that position. Abort a child, right. the child in the womb. So just by using that phrase, he's admitting that a child is being killed. So it shows the illogic of the position. The point number two is when human life begins is not a question for religion. It's a question for science. And we know from science that human life begins at conception. So there's this kind of deflective technique of calling it a question of religious belief. If we think it's that, then we get into a, a quandary from which we cannot escape. Because at some point, the law has to draw a line and say, beyond this point, this human being cannot be killed. So it will be, in effect, the government deciding which religious belief everyone has to accept. At least um, we can infer that, because if we base the idea on a human life should not be innocent, human life should not be killed, or we're saying it is a human life, but it, ha it can legally be killed up to this point. Either way, there's, there's a moral question, there's a, a, a religious question, ethical question. The government's going to have to take that position. If the position is human life begins at that point, then they're opposing one person's religious belief on everyone else. And one can ask, mm -hmm. why at birth? Now, states that want to be more limiting of abortion are using the heartbeat as, as the uh, threshold. Uh, what about the brainwave activity? What about on the other end when the child utters the child's first words? That shows self-reflective consciousness. Someone could, their religious could belief could be that that's when human life begins. So should it be legal to kill a child outside of the womb before the child utters the first words? So this gets yeah. us into an unescapable um, uh, quagmire. And we have to, there are different aspects, right? There's the scientific aspect when human life begins. Yeah. There's the moral aspect about it's wrong to kill innocent human life. There's the legal aspect about what rights does a human life have in different stages of life, uh, different conditions. You know, minors don't have some rights that adults have. People who have committed felonies mm -hmm. are deprived of their liberty if they're convicted and so forth. Uh, so th those are legal questions. So there are all these different aspects. The religious question has to do with when the soul enters the body and what, what are the implications of this human life being made in the image and likeness of God. These are the religious theological aspects. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but that has no bearing on this. Uh, look, uh, Archbishop, when I first heard the president say this, I thought, clearly, this is a, a perhaps in, in, in the opinion of some, a smart political operation underway to uh, put all of these justices who are supporting the overturning of Roe in this religious box and say, well, you see, they're these odd religious people who feel they have to vote this way, and they, th their ruling should be considered in that light. How should the church and the bishops respond to Biden's complete distortion, it seems to me, of his professed faith when it comes to abortion? We've been trying to be clear on this, that it's not a matter of religious belief. We're not trying to impose our religion on everyone else. Is that what abolitionists were doing in the middle of the uh, 19th century? Were they imposing a religious belief that slavery is wrong on everyone else? 
there are certain ethical moral questions that are universal goods that we know from reason alone, right? We always make this distinction in our Catholic tradition of faith and reason. There are some things we can know from reason alone, certain basic ethical principles we can know, such as we should not kill innocent human life is one such example. We can know that from reason alone. And, and our law recognizes this in so many different ways. Homicide is wrong. That's not a religious belief. Religious endorses it, backs it up, gives us deeper insight into these uh, moral questions. Uh, arson, embezzlement, all these things are all, they're moral issues that are also crimes because they are wrong. Yeah. So killing an innocent human life should also be wrong. Now we get into other legal questions about the criminalization and the punishment of people involved in all that. There, there can be, we have to understand mitigating circumstances and all that. But it's it's not a religious question. Religion gives us deeper insights and, and teaches us right from wrong. Mm. But many of these things we can know by reason alone. It's been a year since you wrote your pastoral letter, uh, Before I Formed You in the Womb, I Knew You, uh, which touched on human dignity and the unborn and Holy Communion and Catholics in public life. In it, you write, quote, those who reject the teaching of the Church on the sanctity of human life and those who do not seek to live in accordance with that teaching should not receive the Eucharist. Should Biden receive the Eucharist, Archbishop? I was trying in that pastoral letter to lay out the basic Catholic teaching, which we've always believed from the beginning. And with, in terms of being properly disposed to receive Holy Communion, one cannot be in a state of moral sin. Moral sin. We speak about it being in a state of grace, right? And if they are, God gives us the great blessing of the sacrament of penance. We can avail ourselves of that, receive his forgiveness in the sacramental absolution. So someone who promotes a grave moral evil, such as the killing of innocent human life, uh, is participating in that. That is very serious, and they're implicated in the sin. One could argue, well, they have to know that it's wrong. That's true. There has to be knowledge that it's, it's wrong, and there has to be the full consent of the will. But it's clear to me that those who are supporting abortion know that it's wrong because they will not answer a simple, straightforward question about the status of what's in the pregnant woman's womb. They will not answer a simple, straightforward question with a simple, straightforward answer. They always dodge the question, right? They change the subject. Uh, yeah. That tells me that they know that they're wrong. So knowing that they're well, wrong that and something that's gravely evil means they are implicit in a very serious sin and need sacramental absolution before receiving Holy Communion. Well, that's what's so odd about the, the president's statement there. He said aborting a child. I mean, so he's acknowledging the end result of the abortion. He's not saying, you know, uh, pregnancy termination or using a euphemism. He was pretty explicit in his comment there. Yes, and it shows, it shows what they really believe, what they really know in an unguarded moment, you know, when they forget to use their kind of deflective terminology. It shows that they really know what's going on. Uh, a member of your flock, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, is also invoking her faith to justify abortion. Listen to this from this week. Draft of a decision that was an assault on women, lack of respect for women and their judgment, but it was a did violence not only to women, but to the Constitution of the United States. Now, I have five children in six years and one week. Catholic, went to church in Poland and all that. 
So I'm, I'm like, I, I respect the views of other people for themselves. I don't think they have any business telling women how they should deal with their own reproductive freedom. Your reaction, Archbishop. This is clearly contrary to everything we believed from the very beginning. Uh, the great one of the many great blessings of Christianity was bringing a higher moral standard into the world. And from the very beginning, the church has recognized the evil of abortion and has condemned it. Uh, so this is clearly out of line with uh, our Catholic principles, again, which are based on, on, on reason as well. They're, they're certainly not irrational. They're very reason based. And uh, the idea of not making decisions for someone else, again, where do we draw the line? Why do we draw the line at birth? And what is really frightening is some on the pro-abortion side are already beginning to speak about termination of life after birth. So how much further are they going to drag it out? Are we going to impose our beliefs on someone else who want the child killed after birth? And it seems uh, preposterous we have to recognize the pro-abortion side has been getting more and more extreme in their positions. Remember the old phrase, legal, safe, and rare? When do we hear that anymore? Assuming the final draft looks uh, like the draft we see before us, that the court has affirmed that is indeed Alito's draft, how will this impact the pro-life movement and the bishop's posture at both the state and the local level? Keep doing what we're doing. Uh, we, we will need to redouble our efforts uh, in both places, both states that are going to become far more radical with abortion, such as my own state of California. And those stations, the states that are going to limit it, and especially if they're going to outlaw it, we need to redouble efforts to love them both, right? This has been our approach all along, love them both. Women in crisis pregnancy uh, need support. I said to some founders of a crisis pregnancy home in, uh, in New Hampshire, the St. Gianna's place, I told them the other day, look, the, the moment for these crisis pregnancy centers and group homes has arrived. Uh, if Roe yeah. is struck down, women are going to be looking for an alternative and a safe place, a home, for they and their children. And um, perhaps uh, you're right, that moment has come and these corporations should think about uh, building closer bonds with their employees and giving women that option to have their children. Yes, a woman, a woman should never feel abandoned and afraid and all alone. That leads to disaster. Uh, she needs yeah. to be surrounded by love and support. And I'm so proud of our fellow Catholics and other people of faith who are running these, these crisis pregnancy clinics. We're the only, I, I like to call our side the pro-choice side on this issue because our crisis pregnancy clinics offer her all the other choices. There's only one choice they don't offer. And the abortion clinics mm -hmm. offer only one choice. And one choice is no choice. You have to have at least two options mm -hmm. to have a choice. Archbishop Salvatore Cordelion, I thank you for your time and your clarity. You're welcome. Pope Francis continues to speak out on Russia's invasion of Ukraine with some very pointed comments directed at Orthodox Patriarch Kirill. The USCCB is shuttering its news operation, and some U.S. bishops continue to repudiate the German synodal way. Joining me now with analysis of these stories and many more, a member of the Papal Posse, priest of the Archdiocese of New York, and the author of the very prescient new book, Calming the Storm, Navigating the Crisis Facing the Catholic Church and Society, 
Father Gerald Murray joins the program. Father, thanks for being here. Uh, before we get to the, the book, uh, Calming the Storm, Pope Francis had some strong words for Moscow Patriarch Kirill this week. In a recent interview, Francis said he urged Kirill in their March Zoom meeting not to become, quote, Putin's altar boy. Francis also made comments about NATO's expansion, uh, claiming that perhaps this, quote, barking at NATO or the barking of NATO at Russia's door had facilitated the invasion or led to it. A meeting between Putin and the pope has been offered, but so far, no response from Moscow. What do you make of Francis's comments? Let's start with his calling Patriarch Kirill out as he did. Well, I'm glad he did, but, you know, uh, it's, it's not a question of becoming his altar boy. Uh, Kirill has been a complete supporter of this invasion, of this immoral, uh, horrible war that's being waged. Uh, he, the other, he also said uh, recently that uh, Russians, don't, Russians don't invade other countries. Uh, that's a, a line that Lavrov, the foreign minister, said, you know, a day or two after the invasion happened. No, uh, the patriarch has been justifying this aggression. Uh, he has not condemned Putin for doing something immoral. And, you know, where is the outrage from Kirill about the uh, murders and the war crimes and the destruction of civilian homes, the targeting of people, the murders and all the rest? So uh, the pope is right to criticize Kirill, but I think we have to realize that Kirill is basically an apparatchik, meaning he's a functionary mm. of uh, Putin's government. And that really is the reason why he's not pre preaching the Christian message forthrightly. What do you make of the Pope's dalliance into uh, foreign policy analysis here, saying that it was NATO barking at, at uh, Ukraine that caused Russia to go ahead and jump into this well, invasion? Well, uh, this is, I would say, with all due respect, naive. Uh, are the people of Poland responsible for uh, Putin's inviting, uh, invading Ukraine because Poland joined NATO a number of years ago? The idea that sovereign nations cannot determine their own foreign policy because their former communist master won't be happy, uh, that's not a part of uh, any analysis of democracy and freedom in the post-World War II era. Uh, no, NATO's not responsible for the Russians going into Ukraine. Putin's responsible. And then the generals and everyone else carrying out these war crimes, they're the ones responsible. Mm. I also uh, want to mention uh, Pope Francis was seen using a wheelchair for the first time in public this week. It's reported that knee pain is making it difficult for him to walk. Father, the Pope is 85 years old. He's canceled or reduced scheduled activities often in the past month due to this pain, uh, so the Vatican says. Your thoughts on what we're seeing? And, of course, we wish the Holy Father the best and hope his health recovers. Yes, no, I was glad to see that he was in the wheelchair only because I, I don't want to I don't want to be in a wheelchair myself when I get that age. But if you know, if your knee pain is such that you can't walk right. And when I watched the pope in Malta, I was troubled to see how hard it was for him to walk and to get around. So it's good for him to rest that knee. The doctors obviously prevailed upon him. Uh, so I hope that he'll be able to calmly and with patience, because we know he's a man that likes to walk around and, and you know, see people and all the rest. So. Uh, sometimes you just have to accept medical realities and, uh, you know, give a spiritual uh, uh, significance to it by saying, I'll, I'll offer up uh, this wheelchair experience as part of my cross.
Mm. I spoke to somebody at the Vatican today, in fact, two sources, uh, who say it may not only be the knee pain, that this could be lingering effects of that uh, very intense surgery. He had the colon surgery earlier this year, or late last year, rather. Interesting. Well, you know, the Pope obviously uh, went through a, a very significant surgery back in uh, last year, and um, the Vatican has not really given updates on that so much. So who knows? But, no. you know, I my heart goes out to the Pope because I hate to see physical suffering, and particularly someone who yeah. has such an uh, you know important role in the world and in the Church. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Father Jerry, the German synodal path continues to be controversial. Uh, as you recall, there was an April 11th open letter signed by over 70 U.S. bishops critical of what's happening in the Church in Germany. Uh, this week, one of the signatories, Bishop Sam Aquila, wrote in his own letter to the head of the German Bishops' Conference, and in it he said, the synodal path does not simply address structural concerns, it challenges and in some cases repudiates the deposit of faith. Documents of the synodal path cannot be read in any other way than as raising the most serious questions about the nature and binding authority of divine revelation, the nature and efficacy of the sacraments, and the truth of Catholic teaching on human love and sexuality. Uh, and just to kind of bring people up to date, th this synodal path is sort of a coming together, a listening session that is a dress rehearsal for what we're about to see on the world stage in Rome next year. Father, your thoughts on Aquila's criticisms, and uh, we should add that Bishop Aquila's been uh, engaged in an ongoing back and forth with the German bishops. You touch on some of this in your book, Calming the Storm. Yes, no, the Bishop of Denver is an heroic figure because he's speaking out about a matter of grave importance. And he's doing so uh, in a way that is getting the attention of the Germans. The German Bishops' Conference, along with the Committee of German Laity, have produced a revolutionary program called the Synodal Way Propositions, which include ordaining uh, women to the priesthood and the episcopate. It includes the blessing of homosexual unions, the approval of homosexual activity. Uh, it is a revolutionary document. They want bishops of dioceses to be elected and to be able to be recalled by the uh, people of the diocese. No, it, it is essentially a Protestantization of the Catholic Church by recentering authority away from the hierarchs, meaning the bishops, and putting it in the mm -hmm. hands of essentially a self-selected committee of lay people. It, it's terrible. And I, the, the Bishop of Denver deserves all praise. In calming the storm, uh, you, you suggest there that it's one thing for dissent to come from the pews, but when it comes from the hierarchy, it, it truly is a dangerous situation. What effect do you think this is all having on the universal church? Well, uh, this is leading to extreme strife in the life of the church, great fears of what's going to happen as the synodal way is influencing the synod on synodality, which is this two-year process that Pope Francis began. We're well into that now, the consultative phase in diocese, and people have been meeting. We had meetings here in the Archdiocese of New York. Uh, so the great fear is that those people who think the German bishops are not heretics but prophets are then going to take their uh, really heretical propositions and then put them forward as somehow the will of the Catholic people uh, and the kind of mm. cutting-edge direction we have to go in. Uh, Raymond, we're seeing a revolution in slow motion, and it is going to cause what all revolutions cause, which is strife, 
upsetness and on the hand of the revolutionaries basically lying and fraud because they're going to claim, oh, there's nothing revolutionary here. We're simply getting back to original Christianity. Uh, no, they aren't. They're trying to revolutionize the church in the view of mm. basically 20th century Marxist and liberal ideas. Uh, and where does Jesus fit into that? Uh, they don't ever say. Uh, the idea that what Jesus did at the Last Supper was inadequate, that we have to supplement it by calling in the women apostles, Jesus never did that. The German bishops want him to want to do that themselves. Mm. Well, uh, the, the further troubling point here is many of those who are running this synod on synodality next year, they're the ones furthering and, and giving voice to these, you know, very uh, radical ideas that really have no uh, track or precedent in the Catholic Church. They're just—they're they're pulling it out of whole cloth and seeking to impose it on the Senate. So we'll see what happens. But, Father, here in the U.S., the USCCB, the Bishop's Conference, abruptly announced this week it would shutter the D.C. and New York bureaus of the Catholic News Service by year's end. This is a hundred-year-old institution. Uh, this is part of their reorganization of the communications department. Its Rome Bureau will continue to operate, but all in all, 21 employees will be laid off. Now, the conference claims this is cost-cutting, and I imagine it's being forced in this position because you have hundreds of millions of dollars in abuse settlements paid out in recent years. The, the question is, who is the audience for this material? I mean, is that also what's driving this um, consolidation and sh shuddering. Yeah, well, I think the, uh, you know, in the past, the Bishop's News Service was basically the unique source of news about life in the Catholic Church for diocesan newspapers. Uh, and then mm. also, if any of those uh, news service stories we've picked up in the secular media. Now the competition's all out there, you know, between EWTN and all the various other Catholic networks, websites, podcasts, uh, you know, people doing news out of their own basement that has widespread uh, uh, influence. So the competition got strong. And um, what I most regret, though, about this closure is that they didn't announce at the same time that they're going to have a low-cost digital strategy, uh, which is very possible now in the media environment that we have. I hope they do resurrect something because, you know, diocesan newspapers and the like do need a story and analysis, and uh, it would be a shame if that was simply not no longer available. Yeah, well, they're, they're also shutting down their, their publishing operation, which, you know, is, is another odd thing. But I guess they'll just contract out when it's a papal encyclical. I guess they'll just contract it out to a secular publisher and, you know, and, and move it that way. Uh, they do an awful lot of rewriting. And we have to say this about CNS. Um, uh, they, they do an awful lot of rewriting of press releases. And like these diocesan papers, the church has a tendency to sort of look for life among the tombs of dead or defunct media. They do that. And I think they extend a lot of these periodicals and, and organizations just because they've been around a long time. But if there's no audience, you can't sustain them. And uh, th that that's what I think ultimately did, did them in here. It's a financial proposition. The bishops couldn't keep floating it. Father, uh, also in the U.S., Father James Martin, along with America Magazine and America Media, all part of the Jesuit media apparatus, has announced the launch of a new website this week uh, for outreach to Catholic LGBT people. It's called Outreach, according to Father Martin, one of the universal apostolic preferences of the Jesuits now is walking with the excluded. 
Jesus went to the margins. That's where this community is right now in the church. They're the most marginalized group in the church, bar none. Um, again, this is a theme you touch on in Calming the Storm. Your thoughts on this initiative, and what do you make of the timing, given the ongoing synodal path underway in Germany? Okay, so a couple of things. You know, claiming victim status as a uh, way to gain influence is now being embraced by Father Martin. The most excluded group in the church is the people that are now launch, helping him to launch this, you know, who knows how many dollars worth a website, which is going to become an influence center for agitation to support the legal, uh, the legitimization of homosexual activity. Uh, you know, Father Martin never talks about courage and the courage members. He's marginalized them completely when he talks about the church and homosexuality and pastoral outreach. Now, you know, Father Martin in his book, Building a Bridge, accuses the Catechism of the Catholic Church of cruelty. Uh, in its statements about homosexuality and homosexual attraction. Uh, now we've got Cardinal Marx and Hollerich over in Europe saying that the Catholic Church's teaching is wrong on homosexuality, the catechism has to be changed. So what's going on here, I think, is what we talked about in the previous show. There's a vast uh, influence peddling a group that wants to make the Synod on Synodality into the Synod on Homosexuality, and they want to announce that a church that listens to the people has to basically go, go along with what they say the people want. And I can tell you right now, most Catholics do not believe that God made a mistake uh, when he gave the Ten Commandments, when he created male and female, when he said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. That's what sex is for. It's not for homosexual activity, uh, but this is unfortunately what Father Martin is promoting and, uh, you know, most regrettable. I want to get into the new book, Calming the Storm, Navigating the Crises in the Catholic Church and Society. It's out in bookstores now. Uh, you couldn't have picked a more tumultuous moment, Father, in which to release it, so good timing. Uh, it is a book-length interview you gave to Catholic journalist Diane Montagna, um, your collaborator on the project. Why did you decide to do this kind of book now, and why was an interview the best format for it? Well, interview books are easier to read, and that's one of the uh, things that was in mind. And also, interview books are easier to write. So I'm a full-time <laughs> pastor here in New York City. Uh, when I, when, you know, I love coming on your show and, and doing other media-type things, and Bob Royal, uh, I collaborate with his website, The Catholic Thing. But I'm mostly doing, you know, pastoral work in the diocese. So Scott Hahn mm -hmm. asked us, uh, Diane and I, if we'd do a book, and he said, do an interview book. You know, Cardinal Sarah has done three interview books, which very influential. Cardinal Burke has done one, uh, Cardinal Muller, and, of course, we go back to the Ratzinger Report, you know, in the early mm. 1980s. Interview books have a big impact uh, because colloquial style is more accessible. Uh, and then also you're not—you you can bounce from topic to topic, and no one says, well, I've lost a train of thought. No, it's like a conversation. <laughs> we'll talk about this, and we'll talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. Father, you, you've divided the book into seven chapters, including one on your life and vocation, the others covering all sorts of hot-button issues, the indissolubility of marriage, homosexuality and gender ideology, the abuse crisis, the responsibility of the bishops, and the duty of Catholics in the pew. I mean, it, it's sort of like a real-world catechism with contemporary examples of how the Church teaching can be applied. How did you choose the areas of discussion, or did Diana sort of lay that out? 
Well, Diane is sort of the mastermind behind the format of the book, and it's based, it's called Calming the Storm because it's based on the incident where our Lord was asleep in the boat on the Sea of Galilee, and the storm arose, mm -hmm. and the apostles woke him up, and then he calmed the storm. So this, the same idea is that the church right now is like the boat, and we're going through storms, and we have to call on the Lord to calm those storms, but then the Lord calls upon us to have faith and not to worry, you know. The Lord is not sleeping right now. He's very aware of what's going on. Uh, so we turn to him for help. Uh, but the topics, you know, I quite frankly, this book is a continuation of what I've been doing with you and Bob Royal now since 2013, which is to bring mm -hmm. the, the faith and analysis uh, to contemporary uh, challenges. Uh, and, you know, mm -hmm. I, I know from the reaction I get to people on appearing on TV, they like it when a priest tells them what the church teaches because they hear other people contradicting what they learned as kids, and they say, did the church change your teaching? And the answer is, pay no attention to shepherds who are leading you into bad fields. Pay attention mm. to what the church has always taught. Yeah. You, you titled the second chapter, Age of Confusion. In it, you write, the essential problem we face in the Western world is the loss of reality. We've entered into a nihilistic view of the world in which nothing is what it is, where there is no such thing as what something is. According to this view, something only becomes what it is when we determine it. It's called the plasticity of reality. Everything is subject to man's reshaping or designating of value. The plasticity of reality, th th this reality is the basis of everything you discuss in the book, uh, right? And, and how did we get here? as a church and as a society? Well, essentially, this uh, I trace it back to the Reformation and the Enlightenment. So it was uh, religious and social and philosophical ways of thinking that rejected the authority of natural law, of revelation, and then casting doubt even on human reason. You know, reasonable people wake up and understand you know, uh, the desk in my room is a desk. It didn't become a desk when I decided it was a desk. It was a desk, and that's why I bought it. In other words, reality has its own existence and categories, and the key to happiness mm. in life is to discover what reality is and then make good use of it according to its nature. Nowadays, mm. with gender ideology, for instance, you know, people are claiming, well, you, you, maybe you're, when you're born, you're designated as a boy or girl, but you're not really a boy or girl. You get to pick it. Uh, this is insanity. This is against reality. It's the usual problem that happens when people, you know, decide that they're in charge. No, God is in charge. God made the world. God sustains it. And if we don't find God's nature and purpose in reality, uh, we're going to be, you know, what is Walter uh, or one of the writers said, you know, lost in the cosmos. Uh, that's not yeah. what we are. We know where we are and what we're supposed to do. Yeah. In the third chapter, Crooks and Hirelings, uh, you discuss the problem of bishops and priests who teach false doctrine and dissent. Now, this is one of the most difficult things for the faithful, I think, to understand. You write, the warning of our Lord, the Good Shepherd, of the presence of thieves and hirelings who prey upon the flock or who flee when wolves appear should not unduly sadden or cause us to lose our peace. Rather, we take courage knowing that the good Lord is always with us. Uh, Father, what is the laity's role here in this moment? And what of those who say you're being disloyal when you critique those in authority at the moment? They want you to just shut up and pray. 
Okay, yeah. So first about the laity, you know, the role of the laity is the same role of the clergy and everybody in the church. There's a fundamental equality of all the baptized. And our duty is to love and serve God, to become informed about our faith, uh, to pray, to make sacrifices. And when challenges come up, to resist uh, the temptation to cast aside Catholic doctrine in favor of a worldly point of view. Now, is it disloyal to critique shepherds who are leading the sheep astray? Absolutely not. You know, our highest loyalty in the Catholic Church is to God and to his truth. And the truth is a public uh, revelation. We know what the truth is. So, for instance, when Cardinal Marx says that the Catholic Church teaching on homosexuality needs to be changed, as Catholics, we're not obliged to say, oh, you're in charge here. I guess I better go along with you. No, what we say is, wait a minute, you're in charge in Munich, and you're contradicting Jesus Christ. You have to stop. Uh, so, you know, to appeal then to Pope Francis to say, please uh, get Cardinal Marx to change his opinion or fire him, there's nothing disloyal about doing that. And that's really what should be happening. And, you know, we hope and pray that the Pope uh, would become as concerned uh, on this issue as he is on some others, uh, because, quite frankly, we can't just say, well, this is an amusing sideshow in Germany where people kind of letting, you know, airing out their grievances. No, this is a revolution to change Catholicism and make it look like liberal Protestantism. We have to resist that. Hmm. What do you want readers and viewers and uh, fans of the papal posse to take away from calming the storm? What's the overall message here in your mind? Well, I think it's the message that, you know, you give in the show and that, uh, you know, we try to do, Bob and I, when we discuss it. Uh, we're here as servants of the Lord to make known his truth. And in doing so, we have to radiate the peace of Christ. So getting upset about error and evil, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. But we should never turn to bitterness and name-calling and, you know, hatred, uh, casting aspersions and all that kind of thing. Vituperation, you know, we're not into that. What we have to do... Uh, as priests and people in the churches, be faithful to Christ, know our religion, and then put it into practice. And by the way, you know, when Cardinal Marx is teaching error to the faithful, uh, that doesn't mean that the faithful can't learn the truth from someone else. So we ignore shepherds who are doing evil and wrong, and we say, Lord, guide me in faith in the right path. That's one of the brilliant things of Mother Angelica. She made available to Catholics all over the world access to true Catholic teaching. Yeah, and she was beaten up by a couple of shepherds along the way, too. She gave as good as she got, though. Don't worry. Father, we will leave it there. Calming the storm, navigating the crisis, facing the Catholic Church and society by Father Gerald Murray is available now at the St. Paul Center. They're at stpaulcenter.com and EWTN's religious catalog at EWTNRC.com. Father Jerry, thank you for being here. Thank you, Raymond. That is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.